The content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose any medical condition, replace the advice of a healthcare professional, or provide any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Copyright 2020, Fireteam Whiskey, LLC, all rights reserved. Welcome to the Warrior Wellness Podcast, a podcast for military members, veterans, and first responders focusing on fitness, health, nutrition, and biohacking. Our mission with this podcast is to introduce America's heroes to lifestyle habits and hacks that will help them live healthier, happier lives, and in turn, be fit enough to continue their support of their communities and country. Welcome to another episode of the Warrior Wellness Podcast. I am your host, former Army Captain Stephanie Lincoln, and I'm very excited. Um, This has been a long time coming. We keep having to reschedule. I think this has been going on for um, since COVID uh, happened. So um, Rob Wolf, I met him at the Metabolic Health Summit, um, I believe it was this past year, and um, he is—he uh, has a huge history. So I'm going to go through his bio real quick, and then kind of talk about um, why I really wanted him to come on the podcast, why he is such a relevant person in the field of biohacking, um, low carb, um, and also now newly. Um, really in the fight against um, the push for veganism and the big food push for um, monocropping and, uh, you know, ridding our society of animal foods, which is extremely dangerous. So um, we'll talk about that a little bit in this podcast. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist. So um, if you haven't read any of his books, he is an author of three books, and um, he is a health expert and the author of the New York Times bestselling The Paleo Solution, the book Wired to Eat. Um, love both of these books and his brand new book, Sacred Cow, which I just got done reading um, last week and uh, upcoming documentary to go along with the book Sacred Cow that's releasing this fall. So um, he has been a review editor for the journal Nutrition and Metabolism the Journal of Evolutionary Health. He serves on the board of directors for a specialty health medical clinic in Reno, Nevada, and is a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. He is a former California State Powerlifting Champion, holds the rank of Blue Belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He opened the very first CrossFit gym, and his gym was recognized by Men's Health as one of the best gyms in the nation. Rob has been tapped to speak and advise military units, command and first responder units on nutrition and fitness policies and spends a lot of his time trying to improve the health and fitness of our nation's heroes. So guess what? That's what Fireteam Whiskey does, right? So this is why I really wanted Rob Wolf to um, connect with Fireteam Whiskey and to be on this podcast. So I'm so grateful he's making time for this. He's a busy guy, obviously. Um, as his book, Wired to Eat, um, is also one of my va- very favorite low-carb books. I've read it twice. So if you are first um, just starting off your low-carb journey, I definitely recommend his book, Wired to Eat. Um, he also has an awesome podcast called The Healthy Rebellion. I listen to it like every day. So check that out as well. I really, truly appreciate his approach to nutrition in Wired to Eat because I feel like he's really one of the only ones out there right now in the low carb world advocating for a truly scientific approach to the diet. Um, So he actually takes you through a a carb reset and you basically are kind of testing your body's responses to different carb loads and different carb loaded foods because we all have different responses with blood sugar and insulin response for um, carbohydrate loaded foods. So his book, Wired to Eat, and also if you join the Healthy Rebellion, they do these challenges, carb resets, um, where you are actually scientifically trying to figure out how your body is responding and making the best choices for your own body biologically. I think he is one of the only people out there who is advocating for this because you usually, you know, read a book or get on a diet and it's just kind of, um, you know, cookie cutter. Like everybody does the same thing. That's not the way our bodies work, guys. So this is why Fireteam Whiskey Programming's 
are so awesome too, because when you sign up for a Battle Buddy program, you are getting the individualized nutrition. So we are going to kind of experiment, gather some data and work with you on getting you on the specific nutrition program that works for your body. So what works for your body doesn't always work for my body, right? So I am almost completely carnivore. I have been for a few months now. I transitioned from a standard American diet to a healthy diet, you know, whole grains, low fat, never felt worse, put on a lot of weight, um, had all these medical conditions, discovered keto, slowly transitioned to keto, was keto for a couple of years, started playing around with intermittent fasting, uh, multi-day fasting, and then eventually carnivore. So for me, that's my journey. That works, works for me. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So this is why I love Rob's approach to this diet and why to eat. So check that out. And we're going to talk a little bit about this in the interview. But he is just um, very focused because of his scientific background, right? Remember what I just said with his, um, his history and his bio? You know, he is a research biochemist, guys. He freaking knows the body, right? He knows the body. So he is an expert in this area. He understands the biological mechanisms, the chemistry involved. So he is one freaking smart dude. And he loves military. He loves first responders. And he spends a lot of his time and expertise advising these groups and getting them to understand um, these things and how important it is for our community first responders, our law enforcement, and our military members. So I hope you enjoy our awesome interview with Rob Wolf. Well, thank you, Rob Wolf, for joining us on the Warrior Wellness Podcast. I am a huge fan, by the way, of your podcast, The Healthy Rebellion. So I, I listen to it practically every single day. I'm getting caught up on old episodes. So I um, really appreciate um, you and your wife's perspective on all things health and fitness and um, current topics uh, du jour. So um, I'm so happy that we met and connected because we have what is in common is, of course, a low-carb lifestyle and interest in spreading the word on that. But also, you sit on the boards um, and have had a history with helping um, military members and first responders and working with leadership in those areas on getting the word out about um, how important uh, nutrition and fitness um, uh, approaches are, especially the low carb, the no processed foods, the high intensity intervals, the CrossFit style um, workouts. So um, I just really appreciate your efforts in those areas. So I'm so happy you are on our podcast. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you kind of got into working with these populations and, and what you do? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I guess as a little more background, I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. So like not the ones down the street, but, it, you, you know, there was the, uh, you know, the original gym in Santa Cruz and then a good friend of mine, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL. And then his friend, uh, Nick Nibbler, who's a, a retired Marine and myself. And we started training together. We had found CrossFit online around 2000, 2001. And before we knew it, we had about 15 people working out with us in the gym. And we reached out to the Glassmans and said, hey, we'd like to open a gym and call it CrossFit. And they said, you know, go for it, go be achieve. And um, it was a really cool opportunity because I got to work with just a ton of different folks from all walks of life. And uh, I, where my where my heart really ended up gravitating towards it. It's cool working with, uh, you know, elite athletes or whatever, you know, I, I did some work with folks in MMA, uh, Olympic caliber rowers, some, some world champion motocross, uh, folks and, and stuff like that. But it was, it wasn't as gratifying to me helping folks, helping adults play kids games at a high level than it was either helping, someone who was diabetic or had an autoimmune condition that if we could really affect some change in their life, like it literally could save their life. Like that was a population that I just found a huge amount of, of, you know, gratification working with. 
And then that police, military, and fire scene was incredible. And I, I kind of view all of those folks as what I would call warrior athletes. And, and um, the demands that they face are no different than a professional athlete, only with the added element that they don't necessarily know what day they're going to need to perform on. They don't know for what duration, like, is it going to be a five-minute call or is it going to be a five-day deal where there's civil unrest or a hurricane or you, you know who knows what and it was it was uh, very fortunate I had a good friend that was pretty high up within naval special warfare and this person got me uh, a gig speaking at the pre and post deployment retreats that were being offered for the SEAL teams the special boat teams and also the families of these these folks and so I would talk to them about sleep, food, caffeine, nicotine, strength and conditioning, you know, booze intake, like the, the whole ball of wax, which is really interesting to stand up in front of a group of SEALs and start trying to talk to them about their alcohol intake and, and do it in a way that you didn't get like booed off the stage. But um, it was pretty cool. At the end of each one of these events, the, uh, the, the folks would vote on who they wanted to come back for another time. And for the duration of the program, which was six, seven years, I, I kept going back. So I don't know if they felt sorry for me because I had a bad haircut or maybe I provided good value to them, but it, it was cool because they were similar to a professional athlete, very focused on performance. Um, but they, the, the ramifications of getting performance right was literally a life and death kind of kind of deal. So there was just a, a level of buy-in both on my part and on their part that was different. And, and again, like if somebody is geeked out, I'm working with professional athletes or, or athletes in general, that's great, but it just never resonated with me the same way that, that working with first responders did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you hit it right on the head. I mean, the, the difference is life and death, you know, for mm -hmm. people in, in those professions. And when I founded Fireteam Whiskey, I had the same premise and I've been preaching this for the last three and a half years of, of having this, this uh, fitness and health program is this isn't just about looking good in your bikini or your, your bathing suit, you know? Yeah, that's an added benefit, of right. course, right? We're human right. beings, we wanna feel sexy, right? But, you know, on the bottom line is, it is the difference between life and death. You know, if you have a, a if you need the metabolic flexibility, you need the increased reaction time, you need the clarity and mental focus and not the low blood sugar swings and, mm -hmm. and the fatigue. Um, all of these things culminate into you being physically, biologically ready, mentally ready for that moment. And you never can predict when it's going to happen. And I shared with you, um, shortly via email um, about mm -hmm. how your um, awesome company elements, your um, hydration systems, your electrolytes were a part of helping save my life because I've been preaching this. <laughs> it's yeah. cra crazy. So um, thank you for that, by the way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been preaching about this for three and a half years and what I do with military members and first responders. And I found myself in that very situation, you know, three days in the wilderness, lost. And, um, you know, with the minimal equipment I had on my back, which included some survival um, tools, which I always take, and of course, my element electrolytes. So um, that was a part of helping me stay alive out there. And it really was, I went three days without food. Now, if I um, was five years ago, Stephanie, the hypoglycemic since the age of 15, Stephanie, I may not have survived. I literally right. could not even go two hours without food and definitely not several hours. I would be literally passed out. Um, so, you know, can a normal, uh, you know, standard American diet person find themselves in the wilderness for three days without food and survive that situation and have the mental clarity to make good decisions? Um, you know, it, the, the rest goes on and on, the energy to, to move, so thank you for that. I mean, because you, you were hitting the nail on the head with, it's not just about looking good in a bikini. It is about life or death and survival. Um, and you yourself, you have a, a powerful story about how you say all the time about how changing your nutrition, you feel like saved your life. So can you kind of share a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, I had, a, a, I was a 
research biochemist. I was looking at either heading into medical school or kind of a, a research track in the autoimmune cancer arena. And I was tinkering with a, a high carb, low fat, vegan centric diet. And this was back around 1998. And just over time, and this is one of these things that if there's a takeaway from this, I, I hope people learn faster than I did, but um, I just had deteriorating health over a number of years. And folks kept telling me, well, you're just detoxing or you just need to adapt. And, and there can be a, a period of a week, maybe a month where you may feel a little rough with a, a change in diet and lifestyle. But I mean, uh, uh, I'm about 170 pounds right now. At that time, I was a former California state powerlifting champion. So I was about 185, you know, could squat almost 600 pounds and pretty decently athletic. And the malabsorption that I experienced from the ulcerative colitis that I developed was so bad that I got down to about 130 pounds. And so you imagine 40 pounds less of me, you know, I was, I was a, a pretty hot mess and I was literally at my wits end as to what to do. And it, it, it's kind of a long story how I unpacked all that stuff with this idea of kind of a a low carb ancestral type diet got on my radar. And I, I literally was like, I have nothing to lose. And I started tinkering with that. And now 22 years later, I, I feel like I'm honestly healthier and more resilient at, at nearly 50 years old than I was at like 26, 28 years old. So it, it's definitely been a, a profound change for me. Um, I've continued to learn and iterate over time. Like uh, uh, I, had it been easy to fix everything I had going on, I may have never stuck in this scene, but I am honestly like the toughest nut I've ever had to crack in, in all this with like GI related issues, some, some uh, kind of borderline autoimmune conditions and, and stuff like that. And I, I still do some old guy Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, and try to, you know, stay in some decent shape. So I'm still very interested in, in eking out as much performance as I can, but at the same time, I saw both of my parents die relatively early from inflammatory, metabolically driven disease. And I have two young daughters and I would like to, to be in their lives as long as I can and not just duration, but also quality for them. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a 30,000 foot view of, of uh, you know, going from a significant health crisis and, and trying something. And it, again, I guess my a, a takeaway with that is if people get in and start tinkering with things, it shouldn't be magic. It shouldn't be mysticism. Uh, it, if, if it works, it should be obvious that it works. And if whatever we're tinkering with, whether it's low carb or keto or what, what have you, um, if we've given it a good tire kicking, like if we really gave it a, a, an honest shot and it's just not working, then it's time to iterate and try something else because there is something out there that works. And the, what works for me may not work for someone else. And I wish I had learned that lesson earlier. Like I, I suspect that um, my health situation wouldn't have deteriorated as badly as it did if I had, I, you know, if I had listened to my gut instinct early on and just said, hey, this thing doesn't seem to be working. But in, instead, I kind of got bamboozled by people that were feeding me kind of kind of mystical answers instead of giving me a very quantifiable rubric. Well, if here's where you are, try this. And if we're right about that, then this should happen. If we're wrong about that, then this should happen. And it's this logic tree that we can at least get to about 80% of our, our, our perfect bullseye with what we need for like diet and lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And I, and this rolls right into the next question I had for you. So your book, Wired to Eat, was one of the very first low-carb books I read when I was making my own nutrition transition. I was, a since the age of 14, 15, a chronic hypoglycemic, like literally had to carry sugar packets around with me. Mm. Um, you know, and make sure I had sugar in me every two hours. I had horrific passing out experiences while I was driving, oh, wow. in the shower. So um, just chronic up until about the age of 35. And um, you're, when I read your book and the concepts in, the, in this book were not only greatly influenced me personally in my nutrition, but also greatly influenced the direction I took with Fireteam Whiskey when I developed the nutrition programs. And what I love about your approach and what I feel like you are kind of the only one out there right now, there might be a couple others, but back then you really were the only one introducing this scientific approach to, 
to, you know, looking at what works for your body and the way you um, kind of do your, I think it's called the carb reset or the, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so your carb reset in that book, um, you are advocating for a scientific approach to diet. So each, you know, understanding that each individual is unique, and then we all should just engage in some scientific experimenting and understanding what the best foods are for our bodies right now, which may change, you know, as we get maybe hopefully metabolically more healthy, um, as our hormones change or our lifestyles change, all of these, these happen, you know, there's so many cookie cutter approaches out there, um, you know, and hard line kind of well, you must not be doing it right. You know, if it's not working for you, you must not be doing, you must be cheating, you know, and that kind of, right. It must be, there's something wrong with you. And that's not helpful for the process of somebody who is experiencing, you know, genuine, maybe even medical conditions that are unresolved with, you know, treatment and medications and these kind of diets approaches. So um, can you talk about, you know, a little bit more about this, scientific approach and why that is so important for individuals as they, you know, make this transition and, and start looking at their own nutrition? Yeah, you, you know, there's this, this uh, concept called the Dunning-Kruger principle, which is, um, it, it's basically this notion that when people are new to a topic, they feel like they know everything. There's, there's like this graph, and so they call it Mount Stupid, and in the very beginning of things, you've got it all figured out, you know, and, and really relative to the total knowledge available, you're, you're an idiot, you know, nothing. And, um, I spent a lot of time on Mount stupid. Uh, I had a significant degree of success, uh, with low carb paleo, uh, you know, elimination type diets, but I assumed that that was the way to handle everybody. And, uh, I, I broke some people, like there are some folks, uh, they're, their metabolism, their work output, their specific situation, they really do function better at a higher carb intake. And the thing is, is that there, there was a, a study maybe four years ago, and it, it, it made the case that fewer than 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy, so that we could make a decent transition between fat and carbohydrate as a fuel source. And like if they were in a, an event where they, they couldn't eat for three days, that they could maintain functionality and, and whatnot. But because there are so many people that are metabolically unhealthy, the benefit of a low carb diet is so profound there that I assumed that that was what everybody needed. And it, it took some time to realize, oh, there's more to this, although this may work out for 10, eight out of 10 people, there's still the other two or three people that I need to be able to address. And so I, I noodled for a long time on how to best tackle that. And doing this seven day carb test where we have people take a, a specific amount of carbohydrate. We look at, at 50 grams of effective carbs and that's, it, it varies from thing to thing. It's like three medium-sized corn tortillas. It's two and a half bananas. It's one scoop of, you know, a cup of rice. But we have people check their blood glucose before eating, then they eat, and then they check it at one hour and two hours. And we would like to see their blood glucose stay below about 115 milligrams per deciliter. And we also check for kind of uh, uh, subjective elements. How do you feel? How's your, your brain function? How's your digestion? Do you get any joint creakiness or anything with it? So we're looking at the objective measure of the, the uh, blood glucose response and the subjective measures of just how you feel, you know, on, on a lot of different levels. And I will say a lot of what this, this testing does is it illustrates in, in pretty stark uh, detail that most people don't do that well with a ton of carbs. Like they just get a, a really nasty blood glucose response. Usually they, they get some rebound hypoglycemia. And so the, the seven day carb test serves two purposes. One, it helps us to find those, those, you know, 10 to 20% of people that actually might do better on like a, a moderate to high protein, higher carb, lower fat diet, because there are those people out there. But then for the other folks, instead of me being the big jerk that wants to take away their cookies and all that type of stuff, as a coach, we would just look at their response and I'm like, there it is, man. Like uh, you have diabetic blood sugar levels. What do you want to do about that? And then they would say, well, what do I need to do? And it's like, well, 
we probably need to keep your carb intake a bit lower and you seem to do okay with these carbs and not these carbs. And maybe with some, some training or, or improvements in sleep and stuff like that, we might be able to regain some of that. But it was kind of cool because instead of, again, me being the jerk that was taking away their, their cookies and, and all that type of stuff, it was their own body that was dictating what the situation was. So that thing was um, really powerful. And it, it is interesting. Wired Eat's been, been nice and successful. It, it, it's done well but it's been fractionally as successful as my first book, The Paleo Solution, which ironically, The Paleo Solution was very unnuanced. It basically wrote things into religious doctrine, do this, do not do that. And the irony there is that the second book was far better, but because it had that nuanced approach and I wasn't dictating doctrine, I was helping people to kind of find their own way, the people who really gravitated to it were people like you who were coaches and it, it provided a, a rubric for helping people move through that process. But for the unwashed masses, ironically, like they do much better with this kind of like prescribed doctrine, you know, do exactly this. And, and um, that's still something I'm perplexed over. Like how, how do you help the most people without turning stuff into, into this like doctrine that then you spend a bunch of time trying to unpack when you, you have a situation where that, that the thing that works for the 80% fails for 20%, you know, how do you address that? And so that's an ongoing thing I, I tinker with. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Now that you say that, I'm like, yeah, that's true because I get that all the time as a coach. Um, you know, just tell me what I can't eat, you know, and what I can eat. And it's like, well, you know, and I'm a scientific mindset kind of person. I'm like, well, you know, this can change over time. And, you know, we got to look at the data. And you know, so, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point, how it kind of turns into kind of this, this doctrine. And, and a, a lot of people, that's what they crave. That's what they feel like they can, if, if you can set up those boundaries for them, um, you know, and, and make them very large walls instead of kind of, you know, you can move these walls, they do better on those kinds of plans. Yep. So, yeah. Um, but one thing that, that paleo, keto, carnivore, no sugar, no grains um, diets have in common um, and others like Whole30 and um, a couple of others they, they have the common belief that, that grains are, are detrimental to one's health. And, and in a lot of ways, certain, definitely processed sugars will, will go there. Um, and they're not to be consumed by humans. So can you, uh, as a, a kind of paleo-ish guy, um, you know, with your history, can you kind of give us a short sum summary of why um, all of these diets kind of have that um, in common of, of the grain issue and why human beings shouldn't be consuming grains. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting and it, it's, uh, it's something that I've definitely evolved over time. Um, this is maybe kind of a weird way to answer that, but I, I think so long as people are eating enough animal products, enough meat, and if they handle dairy, you know, enough dairy and seafood and stuff like that, it's almost like you have to have enough of that and then you will have some capacity, which will vary from person to person to be able to, to deal with the grains. Um, as people shift more towards kind of a vegetarian and vegan type diet, this is where I, I really see more problems pop up. But even in that, those cases, like some people do really well on them. So, I mean, it, again, we have to be kind of flexible with that stuff. But when you look at the, the nutrient density, like the amount of vitamins, minerals, essential nutrients that you get per calorie from things like meat, seafood, fruits, vegetables, and even some roots and tubers, like potatoes are much more nutritious than say like white rice. Uh, sweet potatoes, much more nutritious than bread. So it, it, it really boils down to kind of a nutrient density story. And in the modern world, nobody is generally, you know, most people are not struggling with a lack of calories. They're, they're actually overfed and undernourished. They're getting too many calories relative to the vital nutrients that they need. And so grains, I, I think, can, can play some part of a role in, in some folks' diets, but there's, there's the glycemic part, which is the blood glucose response. And so things like rice and corn and, and uh, uh, wheat-based bread, they're just very high in carbohydrate relative to the, the total volume that's there. 
And then for some people like myself, I'm highly reactive to gluten. And so I have, I have celiac. And if I, um, man, if, if somebody cooks uh, some, if they grill some sourdough on a grill, grill a steak on that grill later in the day, I'm going to get sick from it. Like I'm, I'm that degree of reactive. And what's interesting circling back around to this, this uh, particularly the uh, military scene, although police and fire experiences too, will notice that some people will tolerate a given food when their stress level is relatively low. Their sleep is pretty good, you know, their, their base level kind of allostatic load, the total amount of stress coming in is okay. But when that starts ratcheting up, we find that their carb tolerance decreases and oftentimes they start noticing GI problems. They'll get acid reflux, they'll be constipated one day, loose another day, kind of this irritable bowel syndrome type things. And this was something that I really saw within the special operators community, the, the SEALs that I worked with. When they were home, and although they train really hard a lot, it was just kind of a different deal, but they would get deployed. The, the time zone change that they would experience is kind of a big kick to the jimmy as, as a, a standalone item. And then a lot, most of the time, these guys were on night operations. So they would sleep during the day, be up at night, have like their night vision gear on so that they're, they're, they have this blue green light that suppresses melatonin production. And they would just be an absolute mess. Like pre-deployment, these guys might have a testosterone of like 900 or 1100 for total testosterone. And they would come home post-deployment and have a total testosterone of like 300. And they felt like absolute garbage. And they they noticed that, oh man, I've got these gut issues and, and uh, uh, you know, blood sugar swings. And they would just notice that if they shifted more towards a lower carb diet and kind of, kind of trying to minimize grain intake, which is a non-trivial thing to do sometimes deployed because like your, your food options are, are oftentimes quite limited. But if they could just shift things more on that lower carb side of things, their inflammation improved, what sleep they could get improved. And then possibly most importantly, the, the feedback I got time and again was that the improved blood glucose response, not getting into a hypoglycemic state was really advantageous. Like if you're, you're thinking about it, like if you're, you're dug in for two days waiting to take a shot on a target, you know, and you start suffering a hypoglycemic event and your hands are shaking, your vision is blurry. Like that's horrible. That's a horrible thing uh, for police officers. If you need to de-escalate some sort of a, a gnarly situation and you yourself are in kind of emotional turmoil because you're having a hypoglycemic event. Like it, it's just terribly stacking the deck uh, against you. And so that's, that's been the, the, the big real world immediate benefits that I've seen when people, you know, find what, what amount and type of carbohydrate that they do well with. And again, um, it, it can vary from, from day to day, and it, but oftentimes people find, particularly for um, police and, and firefighters, because they're on these rotating schedules so often, they're better off just kind of being low carb across the board. And they'll, they'll maybe put a little bit of post-workout carbs in or, or something like that, but they really compartmentalize it. But because their life is changing all the time, they, they, they don't have the ability to kind of periodize nutrition on a, a year long basis. Like most of these seals know nine months in advance when they're going to deploy. And so they can start tightening things up appropriately. Whereas a police officer, they, they go from being a mom or a dad to a baseball coach to a, an on-duty officer to, you, you know, to, and, and it just cycles within a 36-hour, 48-hour period. They're wearing a ton of different hats. And so it's much more challenging to periodize things in that way. They need to be resilient every single day. And that low-carb low approach, if it, if it works well for people, it, it seems to provide remarkable resilience. And along those lines, um, you know, for me as a former military member myself and, and remembering <laughs> the crap that I was given to eat, um, you know, and, and this continues, they, they've made some improvements, but, um, you know, it, it seems to be very, very small baby steps and, um, you know, that they have these, these food systems now in the military chow halls where they have this, uh, 
red, yellow, green system. I don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the argument is, well, why are the red foods even in there? You know, so right. I mean, it's right. it, it's mind boggling how um, you know it's and it's I think it's it's kind of a, a blemish upon us as a nation. Um, that the fact that, you know, one in four veterans receiving care in the VA has type two diabetes. This is a, a, a hundred percent lifestyle, uh, disease, you know, right. and, and we're spending billions of dollars treating this, this disease, plus all of the chronic health issues that come up, um, in relation to the development of just type two diabetes, I just feel like it's such a blemish upon, you know, our nation that, you know, that we aren't making the prevention types of efforts. And then the, and then the argument against, I, I've come up against this with my own clients is, um, you know, receiving care in the VA system. I get them on a low carb plan. They, um, you know, they, they come off their, you know, they have to reduce their um, pre-diabetic pre um, medications. Mm -hmm. Their A1C is going down. Um, they are losing weight. They're feeling fantastic. Maybe they don't have sleep apnea anymore. And then they go back for their checkup and they get all these wonderful numbers back. And the doctor's like, well, what are you doing? And they, they have have to say, you know, to the doctor, well, I'm doing keto or I'm doing paleo or I'm working with a coach. And the doctor says immediately, you need to stop doing that. You know, and, and I am a licensed mental health counselor and, you know, you're a coach and I know kind of our, our, you know, single premises do no harm, you know, mm -hmm. and that that's, how is that not harmful? Oh, I have to pause. <laughs> My cat decided that he'd a, like to I'm be on the podcast. <laughs> He'd like to visit. Um, so yeah, so it's it's frustrating that you know our our nation's heroes and the people who are are providing us you know the perfection the the uh, protections and um, you know putting their life on the line every day for their communities and country um, are are you know being given this kind of pile of untruth um, and not set up for success. Uh, you know, metabolically and, and, you know, suffering from these chronic diseases and, and our, our firefighters, I mean, half of the firefighters who die in the line of duty die of heart attacks. I mean, let's mm -hmm. talking about inflammation 101, right? And, and if you ask any given firefighter, I can go down to the firefighter station here and ask one of the firefighter Joe Schmo, do you know what inflammation is? And they probably don't, have no idea what the, what that is. And they've never been educated on that. And I feel like you know, there, there's a disservice there that they should be educated on these things. So we're, I guess we're fighting the good fight here doing that. Yeah, we, um, uh, unfortunately, you and I are not going to be out of work trying to fix this problem. Like there's not going to be a magic wand that, that just fixes it. And you and I are like, okay, we're going to the HVAC or something, you know, like it, it's, uh, it's too bad. We, we did a pilot study in Reno almost 10 years ago where, uh, prior to me arriving there within a one month period. And I think this was 2001 or 2002, three uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas police officers um, had either, a, a, two of them had a stroke, one of them had a heart attack or it was two heart attacks, one stroke, but this happened in a month period and all of them survived. But within most states, uh, law enforcement and firefighters, when they have something like a heart attack or a stroke, there's a whole number of of uh, conditions that they assume it to be a workman's comp LNI claim because they assume that the, you know, the stress of the job and all that is a, a factor. The on the books cost to medically retire these people was about $1.5 million. The real costs are significantly higher than that. And this is a big chunk of why um, uh, municipalities are running these huge deficits because they've got an exponentially increasing healthcare uh, cost and and uh, uh, what they do to mitigate it is just uh, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Like it's absolutely ridiculous. But the clinic I got hooked up with, um, they are specialists in medical risk assessment processes, basically looking at a, a system and trying to figure out where are the risk nodes in that system and what can we do to intervene to lower the risk for the individuals in there. 
So they started doing some metabolic screening and they developed some methodology for identifying people early when they start developing insulin resistance, systemic inflammation and all that. And we screened all of the Reno police and firefighters and we pulled out 40 folks that were at particularly high risk for type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. We got these folks on kind of a low carb paleo type diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best we could. And on that sleep side, part of what we recommended is instead of the rotating shifts where uh, uh, people would go from night to day to night, to, you know, you, you stayed on a shift for a pretty good chunk of time. It was like two months or three months. And then there was an opportunity to change that if you wanted to. Um, but the, the long and short is that this pilot study alone saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a, a really conservative 33 to one return on investment. And um, I was so blown out of the water. I was like, oh man, we're gonna take this thing out and transform medicine. And we've had a modest impact with it, but it's been very difficult to, to sell this to people. We've had tons of municipalities, tons of people in, in different governmental and, and military you know, organizations kind of kick the tires on this, but um, the will to really change everything has been lacking virtually everywhere that we've gone. Uh, Reno had a really unique situation that I didn't fully appreciate that at the time, the chief of police, the chief of fire, the mayor, most of the city council had all gone through our program and had benefited from it. So they were fully invested in it. Whereas when we've, we've gone to other municipalities, um, some of the people are into it, other people aren't into it. Um, we, we've had this program all, almost all the way through adoption within some different military circles, but usually whichever officer was championing it for us by the time we would almost get it, get it, you know, run the gauntlet with it, that person would advance. And so the replacement would come in and whenever somebody new comes in, of course, the previous person, everything that they were doing is dumb. And so they jettisoned the whole thing. So we, we really had some crazy challenges there. And I, I don't know if I'm getting off track, but one of the most frustrating challenges that we faced is, uh, I, and I told our team this, I, I said, someday the person from the pension side of this story is going to be in the room while we're talking to the folks about the medical side of this story. And those, those kitties of money are separate. Like the healthcare costs are separate from the pension costs. And right now, the main reason why law enforcement pensions aren't in as bad a shape as many pensions is because they don't live very damn long. They die early. They, they die almost 20 years earlier than everybody else does. So we were giving a, a talk outside of Boston and I mentioned that, that uh, you know, this whole like early death within law enforcement. And I, I made the case that you guys, you folks have served and I'm here to try to help you so that once you're out and you're in your, your post-career life that you get to reap as many of the benefits as you can because of the, the risk and service that you've provided. And a gal stood up and she said, so you're saying that these guys could live 20 years longer than what they're doing currently on average. And I, I kind of chuckled and I said, you're from the pension side of the house, right? And she kind of like looked around and there was some laughter, but this is another super fucked up element to this system, which is that we're facing a catastrophic failure on the healthcare delivery side of this thing. But on the flip side of this, and I don't know if, if people in the pension side are, are fully aware of this or not, but if you walked into them and you said, hey, how would the books look if everybody lived 20 years longer than they do now? The blood would drain out of their face and they'd probably fall over and, and collapse. You know, So this is a whole other piece to this story where the incentives are not aligned. Like even if we're driving towards better health, we have this other side of the, the, the equation, which is the, the pension side, which is, is going to have to be addressed too, which I know kind of gets out in the weeds, but I think it's been some of the problem with adopting programs like this. And the, the wellness programs that are generally adopted are just jokes. Like they, they really, they really don't work because they're mainly operating within that, that kind of USDA food pyramid, you know, recommended guidelines, which is kind of high carb, low fat, minimize animal protein intake, all that type of stuff, which again, may work for some people, but it doesn't, I, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to find which people that is actually working for. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, we definitely could not uh, end this podcast without uh, touching upon your brand new book, Sacred Cow, which I just finished last week. 
And um, I can't wait for the documentary, the accompanying documentary to come out. Um, and actually Fireteam Whiskey has a foundation and uh, we made a donation to uh, the Sacred Cow. Oh, wow. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah, you. because I'm, I, I'm, I'm definitely just as passionate um, about this subject as, as you are. And you went ahead and wrote a book about it. So, um, you know, the, it's the case for better meat, which I, um, which, you know, we have been kind of told our, all our lives that meat is bad for us. We should reduce the amount of, of eating meat. It causes cancer, causes heart disease. It's polluting our environment. The cow farts, which you um, definitely disprove in your book. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> um, so your book um, blew my mind, first of all. And if you want to learn more and actually learn the truth, because I think you um, and your co-author did such a great job at really look, just breaking down all the science and admitting sometimes where maybe there wasn't enough evidence to, to mm -hmm. make a conclusive decision about some of these, um, you know, these, these, these arguments against meat, um, which the grass fed um, argument as well um, came up in the book. I, I, that blew my mind as well, but um, I, I just wanted to maybe um, have you just summarize a little bit about, um, you know, why would somebody pick up the book sacred cow and, and um, you know what? Why this is an important kind of topic to be discussing in today's um, day and age, with all of our other controversies going on. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> we're adding to it, Rob Wolf. All right, uh, but we have to. We have to have this discussion, and and you're you're kind of shining a light on disproving some of this uh, this uh, big food agenda, vegan agenda that's going on scarily um, definitely from um, our government as well and political leaders so uh, can you kind of touch upon that a little bit yeah yeah and you did a great job introducing that i mean, the the book is called sacred cow and we waffle between sacred cow and scapegoat and it, it's interesting within a a good number of different religions um meat of different varieties is a way of kind of distinguishing self or, or like group from not group, you know, and, and uh, there's some, some fascinating historical examples of where like one group would say these types of animals are okay to eat and the people that eat those types of animals are subhuman and we should probably kill them all. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, uh, it, there's a, a long history of vegetarianism that has come out of the the Seventh-day Adventists within, mainly within the United States, they're where registered dietetics developed and, and came from. There's a great movie, it's kind of old now, but The, the Road to Wellville, and it talks about uh, uh, the guy Kellogg that founded, you know, like Kellogg's cornflakes and all this stuff. And there, there was all this kind of uh, health impetus behind it. But one of the most profound elements early on in the anti-meat scene was that they, um, they said that eating meat produced lustful thoughts and impure thoughts. And uh, it's ironic. I, I was just on a podcast earlier and we were kind of talking about this. I was like, yeah, if you're well fed and you're not nutrient deprived, then you probably do feel kind of randy. Like that's kind of the normal human <laughs> default. Mode, well, he got know? it right. If you just eat cornflakes constantly, you will definitely lose your sex drive because no, it'll trash yeah, nobody's your, gonna, <laughs> your Nobody's going to want to sleep with anybody then. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a really interesting telling piece to it. You know, it, it, it's, it's not a randomized control trial. It's not really scientific, but it's a fascinating the insight into that, that, you know, that uh, eating this nutrient dense food would be associated with, you know, or, or labeled as amoral behavior because, you know, you, you get kind of frisky and all that. But there's, there's kind of three main topics that come up on this, this meat eating um, story. Uh, you alluded to uh, all of them, really. Um, there's the health, the environmental, and then the ethical considerations of, of eating meat. And for the more vegan centric crowd, the, the ethical part becomes largely a religion. Like it's, it's, it's difficult to fully unpack that. We actually started with the health and environmental considerations first, and it's fairly easy to make the case for health, particularly for, for uh, women of childbearing age and children that a meat inclusive diet, animal product inclusive diet is, is kind of a non-negotiable thing. Like the, it, it's very well established in the literature that 
vegan and vegetarian diets correlate strongly with nutrient deficiencies, failure to thrive, lower IQ, I mean, on and on and on. And you, what, what's kind of ironic about that is at its, at its core, vegan and, and vegetarian diets look remarkably similar to what people have to eat in developing countries, which is mainly a singular starchy carbohydrate source, very low amounts of, of animal product intake. And there's all kinds of nutrient deficiencies that pop up with that. Low zinc, low iron, low essential fatty acids, inadequate protein. So, you know, there's just a ton of stuff in there, but we also see these kind of scary um, news pieces and also kind of vegan backed documentaries like, uh, uh, you know, meat's gonna give you cancer, meat's gonna cause heart disease. And there's just terribly performed science behind that stuff, but there's a lot of it and it gets a lot of, uh, a lot of bandwidth from, from media, both social media and kind of mainstream media. But that environmental piece is really where the rubber is hitting the road these days. Um, there's all this linkage between animal product intake and climate change topics. And I, I don't want to bog folks down too much. Like we have a ton of information in the book, but there was, there was one, uh, paper written in the uh, PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it looked at what would happen if we removed all animal product production out of the United States food system. If we just completely removed that and shifted only to fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, and it would reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by about 2.8%, but it would dramatically increase uh, nutrient deficiencies, people would tend to be overweight and we would see other health problems because when you eat a lower protein diet, you tend to eat more total calories. And there were a number of, of other problems. And so uh, it, it's interesting because this, um, this climate change topic as it relates to our food systems has really been like weaponized and politicized. And we see this reflected in things like the, the Meatless Mondays, which is a program where they're, they're saying that we should, in school lunches, there should be no meat or animal products in, in lunches for a day. And the, the push that, that, that people will provide is, well, it's not going to hurt you to eat a salad one, one day a week. And that's really not the, the point. What it is, is kind of the skinny end of the wedge opening the door to the notion that we should just remove animal products wholesale from, from the diet. And it's interesting in this, this time where people are talking about access and privilege and equality and whatnot, what's really ironic about that is the people who will be most negatively impacted by removal of animal products from like these government-sponsored food programs are the poor and are, are, are disproportionately minorities. In the, in the New York uh, school system, 70% of the children are considered low income, borderline on poverty level, and 10% of them are considered homeless. And oftentimes the singular meal or meals that they get in a given day come from the school. And now on the best of days, the food quality in these programs is pretty terrible uh, as, a, as it stands right now. But the removal of the little bit of animal products that are in there currently will mean that there are more refined carbs, more sugar, less vitamins, less minerals, less protein. And so it's, it's ironic, again, in this, this time where people are, are uh, so concerned, again, about access and privilege and equality, it's a largely white, vegan, uh, Western group of people that are dictating to the whole rest of the world that everybody should eat the same way that they should. And so this, this then you look at all of the traditional food systems from Asia, from Central and South America, all, all over the world, all of them are animal product inclusive. And now we have a small group of people that are, are getting non-trivial buy-in from like the World Health Organization, the, the, um, the International Monetary Fund, like these outlets are now recommending that we abandon animal husbandry and, and go to a, a uh, exclusively vegan-based diet on a global level. They cite studies around climate change and health that are completely inaccurate. Like they, they've been uh, uh, really vigorously attacked from academic circles as being completely inaccurate. But man, they, uh, they just stick within the, the psyche of like the, the mainstream media and social media 
Um, my own website a little over a year ago, uh, we woke up one day and we had seen like a 95% decrease in site traffic. And uh, myself and about 20, 30 other people in the low carb paleo space, um, Google did a, a, an algorithm update and all of these people that have been pushing low carb diets for years, um, we just basically disappeared from the internet. Like you couldn't, you had to really work hard to find any of the material that we had generated. And th there's all kinds of conspiracy theories about why that is. Um, uh, definitely within the last three years, Google has to, started doing a lot of work with um, some ph pharmaceutical companies that do significant research and development in things like diabetes management. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, a low carb diet fixes all that stuff. And, and so we don't know for sure why that happened, but it definitely happened. And, uh, you know, so I was really early in the cancel culture, you know, <laughs> experience and uh, it, it's kind of scary. It, it, it's both, um, it's kind of a badge of honor on one hand that, that Facebook and Google find your individual work so dangerous that they, they go out of their way to, to make it unfindable by, by many people on the internet, but it's also, a little stool loosening too, because you're kind of like, man, what are we gonna, what are we gonna do about that? And we, we pivoted and we've, we've done pretty well with that, but we're in a really interesting time. And, and, uh, I, I guess I would just encourage folks, like not everybody has the time to like do a super deep dive on all this stuff. Like sacred cow, the book I, I think is a phenomenal book, but we do have a film coming out as well that, that unpacks all of this stuff. And I would encourage folks like to just kick the tires on the idea that, foods that have been part of our human experience since the beginning of time, S similar, like there was just a, a report that said, um, uh, lack of adequate sunlight may be a significant cause of, of, uh, you know, complex health problems. And it's like, whether you believe the planet is 6,000 years old or 4.5 billion years, the sun's always been there and we've been interacting with it the whole time. And to now think that that is going to kill us or the animal products, which have been, a part of our, our human experience the whole time are, are the most dangerous thing in our diets. And that, that, you know, when you look at a natural environment, particularly if it's grasslands, there are large numbers of grazing animals associated with it. If that was going to destroy the planet, why didn't the pre-Columbian Americas that had three or 600, 100 million bison to say nothing of the elk and deer and all these other animals, why did that not destroy the planet? But now our 30 million, 60 million head of cattle, you know, that we have in the United States, how is that going to destroy the planet all of a sudden? So there's a lot of complex stuff in there and it, it, it's, a, it's a ton to unpack, but you know, the, the book, if somebody is, is a little more geeked out on things would be a really good pit stop for somebody to check it out. The film that was really, really, accessible and we're trying to get that thing spun up to to go into um school classrooms because as, as it stands right now um the the vegan back folks have a ton of money and a ton of influence and uh they've got like k through 12 um education that that you know video written material uh uh, uh all kinds of stuff that that uh, our kids are being spoon-fed you know, describing how terrible it is to, to have animal products in our, our food system. Yeah. And, uh, we'll, we'll definitely include that in the show notes for this podcast. Um, and especially the things that Rob has, is talking about, he has these episodes called salty talk on his podcast and he, he, I mean, he goes after them. So I love, love those episodes because, um, Rob definitely, um, is out there fighting the good fight and um, it's definitely not um, holding back. Um, you know, you've already been canceled. So what else are they going to do to you yeah, <laughs> at yeah. this point? But, you know, uh, I, I, we definitely have the similar beliefs. I mean, we're, we're very libertarian in our views. And it's like, you know, God forbid you take my, my guns and my cows. <laughs> There's going to be trouble. So. Well, literally, we'll be over my dead body at this exactly. point. Exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I cannot eat those foods you you're telling me to eat. They will literally kill me. So Yeah. Um, so, uh, lastly, just to close out here, Rob, um, thank you so much again for, for taking all this time and to, to be on the podcast. Um, you know, just kind of a, um, first step, second step, 
um, plan. So if somebody's listening right now and this stuff is touching them and, and they're, you know, suffering from, from being overweight and maybe pre-diabetic and, you know, having high blood pressure and, you know, have, have, are starting to go down the sick care system, you know, it's not a healthcare system, it's a sick care system. And you want out of that loop. Like I made that decision too, when I was 35 years old, um, maybe it's step one and step two for somebody listening, you know, what, what can they do today and tomorrow to, to start yeah, this process? You, you know, on, on the food side, um, avoiding liquid calories, like the plague, like soda, juice, uh, sweet teas, like, um, that stuff is just death. And, and it, it sounds kind of crazy, but you can consume so many calories so easily under those circumstances. And, um, even if you just shift to like a, a, uh, a, a diet soda or something like that is such a profoundly better decision. So I, I, I'm a biochemist by training. I have a fair amount of toxicology background. I've had people literally say, well, I'm more afraid of like, uh, artificial sweeteners than I am of sugar. And I'm like, you're an idiot. Like go, <laughs> go polish a seat with your ass and, and learn some toxicology and then get back to me on that. You know? So like, I'm not saying that you need to be a monk. I'm not saying that you need to become a paleo man and live under a tree or something like that. But I, I'm telling you, man, liquid calories, particularly for our kids, guy, get them out of the house, like ju juice, soda, like there is no safe dose on that stuff. And that sounds crazy, but if folks will do that, you will see a dramatic immediate improvement. The next thing that I would suggest is really focus on how much protein you're getting at, at every meal and make it a, a decent, you know, palm, palm and a half size whack of protein. And the same thing for our kids, they don't need goldfish. They, they don't need snack wells. They need food that is real food. And I know little Jimmy or little Sarah may throw a fit the first time that you put some real food in front of them. But uh, again, like they will so disproportionately benefit from uh, uh, just making sure that they get adequate protein in their, in their diet. And uh, for, I have two girls, uh, six and, and eight. Um, the main rule that we have is that they, they need to hit kind of a protein minimum. Like we put some protein on their plate and we don't really care if they have some bread or they have some rice or they have fruit or what have you, but they have to get that protein done first. That's like a non-negotiable feature of that whole story. And then we can start negotiating from there. And like both of my kids, I'm, I'm five, nine, I'm not super tall. My wife's five, seven, but both of our, our girls are at the 99th percentile in their height. And they're like 40th percentile in their weight. They're just beanpole tall, super strong. Both of them do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They both do gymnastics and the coaches are kind of jaw dropped at how balanced and calm they are. And I mean, they have their moments, but, um, we just see it when, when they do hit like a birthday party or something like that. And they get a lot of crap food. And even the girls, the dad, I felt really bad after that birthday cake or whatever, you know, and like all kids do, all of us do. So uh, shoot for a, you know, remove liquid carbohydrate and then shoot for a protein minimum, try to get about a gram of protein per pound of body weight and, and uh, magic will happen out of that. And then the, the one other thing on the lifestyle side that I would recommend is folks really paying better attention to their, their sleep and their circadian biology, like try to get outside during the day, which I know for a lot of our first responders is a, a tall order because people are on night shift and stuff like that. Um, if you remind me, I actually have a, an ebook that uh, I have not released, but I'll give to you so that you can give it to your folks called the, uh, the shift work solution. And it, it really helps people to, to unpack how to better navigate it. It's hard. Like shift work is just hard. That, that's the, the facts. But there are a lot of mitigating strategies that folks could do. But going to bed earlier, engaging like on their, their phones, like the night shift and stuff like that. So it changes the light coming out and getting some red tinted glasses and wearing those in the evening. Like once the sun sets, turning down the lights, making the house a little cooler, uh, uh, trying not to go on social media immediately before bed because it always raises everybody's <laughs> heart rate by about 50 beats a minute because of all the insanity going on, you know, but the, uh, uh, remove sugar, hit a protein minimum, and then really focus on improving sleep like that. That is just shockingly beneficial for folks and it's free. 
Like there's no, there's no, you know, Rob Wolf's, uh, uh, you know, supplements in box or sleep, you, you know, sleep in a box. This is all free. It's immediately accessible and it'll add years and, and quality to the years of our lives. Those are awesome tips. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the Warrior Wellness Podcast. And we will include the links to your books and um, Element, which I love, and your podcast um, in the show notes. So thanks so much, Rob. Huge honor to be here. Thank you. And thanks for all the folks out there that are serving and have served. That, that's the, I have very few regrets in my life. The one regret that I have is that I didn't serve in the military. So I, I can't say enough thank yous to all of those people. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Warrior Wellness Podcast. Hey, go on over to iTunes or Spotify follow us, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you screenshot your review and send it to info at fireteamwhiskey.com, we will send you an awesome thank you gift just for your feedback. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you at the next episode.